That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Roger Bennett. My dilemma is I have too many dilemmas. Oh, man, this guy, Roger Bennett. What a fascinating dude. Okay, so he says in the podcast multiple times that he lives in darkness and he's full of gloom and self-doubt and anxiety, but he also consistently describes life and living in America and football, a.k.a. soccer, and his wife and everything with such poetic, glowing prose. He's truly a man of great extremes. So this dilemma of having too many dilemmas, Roger, I don't actually think you have too many dilemmas. I think you're maybe just more comfortable always being slightly uncomfortable. You've got to sort of balance your enormous joy for things like Heart to Heart and Chicago Bears and Dana Plato in different strokes with, a, you know, enormous distress over other things. And I feel like if I stripped you of these dilemmas, real and imagined, I fear I'd then be changing your very soul. I'd be stripping you of your liver puddly and angst and stealing away that very deeply British despair that makes you you. So just this once, I actually refuse to solve a dilemma. I'm going to keep you just as you are. The commish has spoken. Oh, by the way, stick around for a bonus dilemma that I solve from Katie Nolan at the end of the pod. My guest this week is Roger Bennett, the co-host of Men in Blazers with Michael Davies, a wildly popular football, a.k.a. soccer podcast and show on NBC Sports Network. The show's tagline is, we believe soccer is America's sport of the future, as it has been since 1972. It's a great show. It's really fun. And so is Roger. I love talking to him. He talked about how being a White Sox and Everton fan taught him that happiness is a fleeting emotion, how he grew up in Liverpool but felt like a pseudo-Chicagoan and what American culture and television meant to him. His childhood room, fascinating, you know, featuring Budweiser and Coke cans and a Statue of Liberty mural, how somebody across the pond would become so obsessed with America and find his way here. Um, also about becoming an American citizen and why it was one of the greatest days of his life. Also, the secrets of a bald head. It's all in this interview. You guys are going to love it. Check it out. That's what she said. So I'm super excited for this podcast, and I say this every time, but for those who are not aware of the immaculate, uh, extemporaneous prose of one Roger Bennett, I'm not at all jinxing this or setting him up with too much praise. I feel like you will be delighted and entertained by just merely hearing him speak by virtue of the accent, of course, because we Americans are so thrilled by any accent that is not our own, uh, but also the words that come out of his mouth and how he puts them together almost poetically without... Uh, needing seemingly any time or thought behind it. So uh, this should be a great conversation beyond the interest of your life, but simply because of the way you will talk about said life. So let's start way at the beginning. Roger, you're growing up. Uh, tell me about uh, your formative years. Uh, your dad was a judge. Uh, just tell me what it was like when you were a kid. Oh, in Liverpool. Yeah. The Cleveland of, uh, of America. <laughs> it's really the Baltimore of America. It's like a port city that, is no longer needed as a port by anyone. So it's kind of fallen on times of challenge and had to refine its whole essence. And Liverpool was a remarkable city. There's nowhere in the world I would rather come from other than perhaps Chicago. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of football, soccer, as you call it here in America. There's a lot of music, incredible, incredible city. 
for music, not just the Beatles, but when I grew up, just every great band like Echo and the Bunnymen um, and the Teardrop Explodes and the hundreds of bands that begin in the uh, seem to emerge from the streets of Liverpool. But it was a bit of a dark time, a bit of a challenging time. Uh, the city was kind of falling apart. The country was falling apart economically, socially, politically, a lot of riots, a lot of times of challenge. And I grew up in this city loving football, loving music like every kid who grew up there. But it felt like my life was lived in black and white. And the things that I saw on television, you know, different strokes, Fantasy Island, Heart <laughs> to Heart, The Love Boat, Starsky and Hutch, showed me this incredible world, mostly America, that life seems to be lived in technicolor. So even though I was physically an Englishman, I always say that I was really a Chicagoan trapped in an <laughs> English bloke's body. I feel like you're pandering because of my roots, but uh, would you... Sarah Spain, no, there's, a lot, there's a lot in the world that is about you, but this one, I can assure you, is not about you. My love, my love of Chicago... <laughs> and my love of America are, are of course. just uh, well documented. so long lasting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm seventy I'm seventy three years old, so you weren't even born yet. So. <laughs> of course, yes. Uh you are not seventy three for those listening. I believe you are uh, inching toward fifty, right? Uh about eighty, I think it feels as I'm reaching. Wait, is today your birthday? People. No. Are you reading my Wikipedia page? I am. Can I just tell you? My Wikipedia page was genuinely put together by just uh, Wikipedia's army, not by me. I'm, I, I adore my Wikipedia page. Watching it just like come into focus by an army of ants who know nothing apparently. Yeah, but they're just making crap up, and it's truly joyous. Like the birthday is wrong, the everything's wrong, and it's fascinating watching tiny things correct and tiny things stay. Correct. You can wish me happy birthday. Every yeah, day I will. I wish you I'm happy Wikipedia birthday. <laughs> happy fake birthday. Uh, would you be considered uh, a liver? The, the research is tough on Sarah on the stranger. They go deep. They go right. very deep on the research. That's, department. that's right. Yeah, the, 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 that's what she said. Uh, just basically starts and stops at Wikipedia. I've done no other work. Um, uh, would you she consider did. yourself a liver liver pudlian? Do we still go by those names there? If you scroll down on my um, on my Wikipedia page, it will tell you that I'm an Everton fan, I believe. I, a Liverpudlian is the, is someone who comes from Liverpool, so I right, am technic, te- technically from Liverpool. Um, just over a year ago, I became an American. Yes, we're um, going to get to that later. That, that I love that. So th- yeah. So that is how I, that's definitely how I consider myself. But um, I am a a born and bred in Liverpool um, gentleman, and again, it's the most when I grew up, Liverpool was such a fractious place politically. There was a genuine debate within the city council about whether Liverpool should cede from the rest of the country and become <laughs> a glorious republic. Oh my and goodness. I wanted it to very badly. But it, 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 Liverpool is a city apart. It feels like a, like Monaco or the Vatican City, almost right. a principality. And I like love it DC, for that. Or, or maybe if it wants to cede, maybe uh, maybe Texas, the Texas of, of, of yeah. Um <laughs> So tell me what it's like growing up with a father who was a judge. Was he particularly strict or uh, dictatorial around the house? Oh, God love my dad. Um, uh, to listeners to our podcast, um, Judge Iver, he's a, uh, he was a remarkable character. I can say tellings off, of which there were many, just <laughs> seemed to take forever because he would almost sum up both sides. Um, I can see from your side that you believe that in... <laughs> 
cutting class and uh, going off to smoke that packet of cigarettes in the park of your classmates, you were living out juvenile troops. Um, so they <laughs> took forever and the punishments were fairly severe. But my dad gave me uh, so much that's good in my life, like my fandom of Everton Football Club. A, a, I don't know how to compare them. They are like, almost like the Cleveland Browns in, uh, in hope being an annual noose that you place around uh, yourself and it always ends in darkness but you eternally refresh there's two <laughs> two teams soccer teams in Liverpool there's Liverpool who are like the mighty Yankees and Everton are the, I guess the Mets uh, kind of equivalent and my dad gave me my Everton fandom which is such a major part of my identity um, I'm incredibly grateful and I, I always felt like I came from generations of Everton fans, which is true. Like my great, my, my grandfather was an Everton fan. My dad was an Everton fan. But my dad recently told me, Sarah, and this is shocking to any fan uh, who feels they come from great kind of bloodstock and tradition with a team, that um, he, in his day, you'd go to both Liverpool and Everton games. It was just like it wasn't on television, the, the football. So they alternated one week, Everton were at home. The other week, Liverpool were at home. And he actually went to a sports store when he was about nine or ten to commit to one of the teams because he watched them both. They were both part of his life. And he went to the sports store to buy a pin, which, you know, in those days, it wasn't really great merch, great marketing, great commercial plays by the, t by the team. So he went to buy a Liverpool pin and he said to the guy in the sports store, can I get a Liverpool pin, please, mate? And the guy at the sports store said, we're sold out. And he goes, do you have any Everton ones? And the guy said, yep. So he gave my dad an Everton pin. And because of that random quirk of fate uh. that the store was sold out, that's how truly I became a Liverpool fan. And it's like a sliding doors, Gwyneth Paltrow moment. I, yeah. I inherited my Everton fandom from him, but it was for the most ridiculous of reasons. You know, uh, Mike Ryan of the Lebetard Show, I know you've been a guest on that, is a Cleveland Browns fan because his grandma bought plates. Uh, plastic yes. or paper plates with the Browns logo when he was a kid, and for some reason he grew attached to it. So you never really that, know. Isn't what's, that amazing? Yeah, but isn't what's interesting that, is what, how much chance. Part of his life. Yeah, how much chance plays a role. But what you said is so true, which is that even though sports can be seen as frivolous at times, and obviously you and I understand that there's so much depth to be mined from them. But how much your identity can coincide with the team you root for? The Browns are a great example, or in your case, Everton having a, a, a alliance with the sort of underdog instead of the big bad Yankees type team clearly would affect your personality outside of just rooting for sports as you grow up. Yeah, I mean, I would I always say on the show, Liverpool supporting Rog, that Gwyneth Paltrow sliding doors alter ego. <laughs> Liverpool, Liverpool supporting Rog, the Rog who wins things, the Rog who expects to win things, would be an unbearable human being. The, the, the life-affirming nature of losing through sports, which so many of your listeners will... will like, I'm a White Sox fan, huge White oh, Sox boy. fan. And, you know, the, 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 the White Sox, very much my outlook of, of life. It's like life is dark. Um, <laughs> it's full of doom. And ultimately, happiness is a fleeting emotion. And when you seize that happiness, when you experience those moments, you have to value them. You have to never take them for granted. You have to dance as if you're at your own kid's wedding. And so the alignment of the White Sox, of Everton, insert whatever team you support, whether it's the Cleveland Browns listeners or, or, uh, or whomever it is, 
You know, God love you. You're in Miami. You poor Dolphins fans. Oh, gosh. Uh, who listen to your podcast. It feels so dark at the moment. But ultimately, the, the random nature of how you get there is, is all part of the joy. Yeah. I, I just, it's so fascinating how you can sort of learn these larger lessons about life and yourself based on also, you know, I'm a Cubs fan. Some Cubs fans would say, you know, it's an eternity of disappointment. And instead, I somehow, especially in the relationship between the Cubs and White Sox, the Cubs are sort of the Yankees of Chicago compared to the, compared to the White Sox in terms of just fandom and popularity. So I suppose it always gave me this like nostalgic connection to something where the winning is not all that matters. It's the, it's the journey. And so instead of having the dark desperation where happiness is fleeting, I feel instead like, you know, life is a, is a wonderful, pleasurable cruise only intermittently interrupted by things not going as you had hoped. <laughs> it's all about your worldview. Yes. I'm, I'm happier. I'm happiness. Uh, always brace for tragedy, Sarah. Right. Always brace for tragedy. So I, I, you, you grew up a White Sox fan and also a Chicago Bears fan. And you said earlier you, you felt you sort of grew up as, as a, a, a sort of pseudo Chicagoan. So where's the connection there? The, um, the connection runs directly from, you know, you watch Hervé Villachez on Fantasy Island, just this <laughs> suave gentleman who just knew uh, how to squeeze the joy out of life. You watch Huggy Bear on Starsky and Hutch, possibly the most stylish human being to this day that I've ever witnessed. Um, you, you watch different strokes and you see Dana Plato just bring goodness into the world. Nothing can go wrong there. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and so America in general came into my focus as a place where um, life could be lived in technicolor and happiness was possible and aspirations could be held and pursued and uh, in many cases gained. Um, And then the NFL started a broadcast um, around the time John Hughes movies broke. So the two things are very Mm. connected, you know, watching Pretty in Pink, watching Molly Ringwald, um, watching Ferris Bueller in particular, uh, watching that, that incredible scene which I just watched on the plane again recently for the first time in a long time, the Ferris Bueller scene where he's on the parade. um, And and just when you break that parade down and you watch it shot for shot and you just see this effervescent energy coming off the streets and the shots, and I'm not sure if he meant this, John Hughes, but watching it now in 2019, just the incredible um, the, the the incredible eclectic nature of mm. each of those shots. There's kind of like African American uh, dancers dancing down German, the stairs. Yeah. Fact, yeah, there's the Lederhosen uh, wearing kind of umpire band. There's every race, creed, age, uh, sensibility, uh, sexual. They're all all represented in just this incredible couple of minutes. And I watch that with just eyes agog. And I will Mm -hmm. say, I wanted it all very, very, very badly. And the NFL started a broadcast, an hour-long show uh, every week where we get the highlights of the previous weekend game. So we get it all a week late. This is before the internet. You had no way of knowing who the hell won. Um, And I just broadcast a year before the Bears' Super Bowl year. But I was quite taken with the swagger of the team, of watching Jim McMahon in particular, watching Walter Payton. I'd never seen an athlete like it, uh, yeah. watching him run in the backfield and almost savor the contact. He almost initiated the contact, watching him try and punish 
um, any defender who had the temerity to try and take him down with a stiff arm or his own shoulder. I was completely enraptured by the play. Um, and then obviously the fridge came in and just that whole charisma. I love the kickers, Kevin Butler. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, just watching that gentleman swagger up to the ball and spank it from uh, whatever yardage was challenged, <laughs> uh, was turned down as a center. I loved all of it. Um, and the Chicago thing uh, was just a deep emotional connect. I longed to, um, to, to I, I mean, it was a metaphysical place. It didn't exist. I'd never been to America. People didn't travel uh, that far from England in those days. America felt like Mars in a large degree. But I, I, I really identified with it. I love the, the swagger of the whole thing. And my great-grandfather, the myth of the, the family is that my great-grandfather was leaving Poland, uh, I, 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 like many, uh, back in the, the late 1800s. He was a kosher butcher. And where would a kosher butcher want to go to? Chicago, the hog <laughs> capital of the world. Yeah, but, hog um, butcher to like, the world. They, he got off the boat when it docked for fuel in Liverpool, thinking he was in New York when he saw the one tall building <laughs> on the Liverpool skyline. So like, there was a sense of, wow, that is the place we're meant to be. We're not meant to be here. We're not meant to be in Liverpool, this place that was in turmoil. We're not meant to be in England, this place we're under, in the Thatcher days that was really quite politically chaotic. But I was like, this place, that John Hughes place, that Ferris Bueller place, and that's where I always wanted to be. Oh, I love that. You know, I wish I had known that a couple of years ago because I had a Ferris Bueller's Day Off birthday party where we recreated the whole day in as much as we could within the confines of time and the day. And it was a blast. And we were all dressed as different characters. And you would have enjoyed it. I don't know who you would have played. I don't know who you favor, but that would have been a lot of fun. Uh, definitely Abe Froman, the Sausage Abe King. Abe Froman, the Sausage King. That would have been perfect. Oh. We did not have an Abe Froman. We uh, we did make no, the reservation well, at rest at the restaurant under Abe Froman, though, of course, for accuracy's sake. <laughs> we'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. It's a fact. Refinancing your credit card balances can lower your interest rate and save you money. And you don't have to be a financial expert to do it. Right now, you can get a credit card consolidation loan from my friends at Lightstream with a rate as low as $5.95 APR with AutoPay, lower than the average credit card interest rate of over 19% APR. That means you could save thousands of dollars in interest, get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000, and there are absolutely no fees, no application fees, no origination fees, no transaction fees, no prepayment penalties. You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. The online application is so easy, you can apply right from your phone. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. Just for my listeners, apply now to get a special interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Spain, L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Spain. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash Spain for more information. That's what she said. So tell me also about the love of uh, Everton and football. Was that something that you knew you wanted to make a life of or to, to analyze? Or was it always just a fandom thing for a long time before realizing you could make it work? Yeah, I um, so I did come over to Chicago the summer after um, the Bears won the Super Bowl. 
Um, yeah. I had a pen pal, which is in young <laughs> listeners. Uh, in the old days, people used to write letters to each other and then mail them. And so I had a Chicagoan pen pal who lived yeah. um, in Northbrook, uh, right by Highland Park. Right where, near German. where I grew up, yeah. And he wrote every week and I'd write about Everton. He loved the soccer. He'd write about the Bears. Uh, he was a Cubs fan. Um, and he uh, and I kind of traded newspaper cuttings. He sent me a, a Bears uh, painter hat, that old school kind of yeah. football fan hat, which I carried around as if it was the Ark of the Covenant, a sacred <laughs> fragment, which is like, oh, come from the gods. And um, at the end of the uh, the year, he wrote to me and said, why don't you come over for the summer? You know, come and spend the summer in Chicago. And um it, it happened. I'm still not quite sure how it happened because in those days, you know, it was almost like taking a Elon Musk flight to the moon to fly from England to uh, to America. And I landed in Chicago and was there for a summer. Um, he went. I went to Nutria. I went to all the John Hughes haunts. I spent oh, the yeah. summer on the beach in Highland Park, <laughs> and uh, it was it was life changing for me. And that. It made a dream feel very real, very tangible. And I swore that after I finished university, I would be right back. And that's what happened. And I did uh, come back right after university. I just landed in Chicago, didn't know anybody, chose the neighborhood Rogers Park because it had my name in it, didn't know anything Oh my gosh, you're like coming to America. Queens, that is where I will find my bride. I like to think of it more like Scarface, but with more mental delusion. I mean, it's a bit of Yentl thrown in there. There's all kinds of different uh, different pieces. But I just landed there. And um, and to the football thing, it was the one thing I missed. So to be in, in America was the single greatest thrill of my life. And there's not a morning that I've woken up since then when I've not thanked God uh, for, the, for the, just the joy and the honor of living here. I'm incredibly grateful. But the one thing that was missing was the football, uh, the soccer. Um, in those days, it wasn't televised at all. My team, Everton, in what is really their last great season, got into a final of a, um, an admittedly fairly second-rate tournament. But they got into the final. And for the semi-final, a game which was massive in England, um, it wasn't on television at all. And I remember having to call my dad um, in Liverpool, Judge Iver, and have him hold the telephone up to the radio oh in gosh. England so I could follow along. And that's what I was always missing. So the World Cup happened here almost as soon as I landed in 1994. And what I watched World Cup to World Cup, Sarah, was this sport, soccer, which always, you know, I mean, right now I'm in my studio, the Men in Blazers studio, and we have at the back a pennant that I love, which says, Soccer! America's sport of the 80s. You know, it's always the tagline of men in blazers is soccer, uh, America's sport of the future, as it has been since 1972. Soccer was always meant to be an overnight success. And when I watch World Cup to World Cup, instead of being this overnight success, that it was always proclaimed like a pogo stick or a yo-yo or whatever, the growth was slow and steady. World Cup to World Cup, that audience became bigger and bigger more passionate, more, I mean, deeply informed, deeply informed the American audience. And so it was around 2006, Sarah, that I realized that there was a real opportunity to 
um, both work with the growing audience to help to help build the audience and and to pull it together. And so really since then, meeting Michael shortly after that, my partner, Michael Davis, um, we, we've really both focused, not, not by accident, but quite intentionally on, uh, uh, on building a tiny little craft, Men in Blazers, which would kind of surf the, the giddy, uh, inexorable growth in terms of the American soccer-loving audience. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So you come to America, and what is your plan? What did you study in university? What did you think you were going to do here for a job when you arrived? Um, I did uh, law. Uh, like every, well, almost every person that I've, I work with, actually, is a lawyer who never ended up doing anything to do with the law. I think we're all oh, just so there's grateful. so many dodged, retired we, lawyers in sports. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I mean, we all dodge that bullet. It's just an incredible, when you meet someone else, it's like meeting someone else who's bald. You just immediately love them. Uh, so a, a, uh, a recovering lawyer. So I, I uh, had a law degree. I arrived here really not knowing what I was going to be doing. I wrote a load, uh, a lot about culture. Um, and around 2006, uh, the, it was a World Cup final where it was the Zidane World Cup final. This gentleman who you may remember, also a great ball, who in his last game ever for France, the World Cup final, mm-hmm. was having an amazing game. But then a moment of human yep. fallibility just headbutted a, an Italian uh, mischief maker, an Italian pest, as you call him in the NHL, um, headbutted him and got sent off and was, you know, minutes away from ending game, as one yeah. of the, the, the greatest of all time and exited. Um, in pain, in real pain and real human agony. It was really beautiful and remarkable. And the game went to extra time. And I was with my wife watching. You know, every World Cup, I measure my life in World Cup finals. I know exactly where I was at each one. That's how I me- kind of measure out time. And we were going to a wedding. My wife said, we've got to leave now. I said, what do you mean we've got to leave? It's overtime. It's a bloody World Cup final. <laughs> And she said, the wedding's on the boat, and if we don't get there, it's going to go without <laughs> us. So I went to the wedding, but in a terrible mood. Terrible. I, I was, I'm not proud of myself. I was disgusting. Um, and I was at the bar at the wedding, and I was watching another, an English guy be even more disgusting than I was. Um, and I said to him, as we were both waiting for a beer, I said, are you angry about the World Cup? And he's like, God. And he went off, yeah, describing the, just the agony he felt to miss it. And I just said to him, I'm Rog. And he said, I'm Dave. And um, that began a conversation um, that uh, 12 years, 13 years later, we're still having week in, week out, just with a, um, a bigger audience. It's really about the, the human uh, joy, the human darkness, the human glory the human failure that occurs week to week in world football. You know, was it just after that, let's let's do something soccer related or did it take a long time for it to become a work relationship? Um, we met a bunch, talked a lot, realized we had a lot of commonalities, a lot of common life experiences, um, a lot of similarities, a love of America. Uh, we both miss the football incredibly, um, and a lot of differences. Davo's from the south, from London. Um, Davo, uh, I'm from the north, from Liverpool. Davo supports um, a oligarch fuel <laughs> kind of powerhouse, and I supported a um, decrepit minnow. Um, and so the, the differences were as interesting 
there's the similarities. And we realized that the 2010 World Cup was going to be the next time that America was really going to be focused. And I um, started to write about football a lot. Um, really realized there was a moment in the 2006 World Cup that I really loved. Uh, ESPN had the coverage, and it was right before they really started to take their broadcasting of football seriously. I mean, very few networks have done more to change the way uh, the sport is viewed than in ESPN in 2010. They really invested thoughtfully, strategically, brilliantly um, in um, in terms of how they, they broadcast the sport. But 2006, it was still very much, I think, a time filler for um, the June period where there's not a huge number of American sports to fill the airwaves. And there was a moment which was really like a light bulb for me. I was watching England play, and I can't remember who was commentating. I wish I knew. But the commentator um, just uh, said, and the world's most famous footballer in the world, Charlie Beckham, has taken the field. <laughs> and it was it was obviously not Charlie Beckham. It was obviously, <laughs> as you now know, America, it was David yes, Beckham. Yeah. But I was like, oh, my God, that is just genuinely astonishing. <laughs> um, like Wikipedia Stephen Jordan. <laughs> yeah, it was like, oh my, I was like, that's astonishing. Like, there's clearly a market. I was watching how people were savoring the World Cup at that point. Uh, game to game, but it was clearly a lag um, in terms of um, in terms of how it's being broadcast. I think I, I wrote about it for a while. The New Republic had a uh, football coverage, and I wrote an article for them, just saying how ridiculous this was. How uh, you know the football coverage just America deserves better because of this incredible opportunity. But when they're being um, just like sloppily uh, service like that, it just mm. it does the game a disservice. I remember a lot of Americans being like, "Whoa, you know, the commentators don't matter. We have to suffer with, you know, we baseball fans have to suffer with Morgan week to week. Who cares about the cover- the, the commentating?" But I, I think we I think we realised that um, that football was a new sport and the storylines were were known but not fully um were not fully as rooted in the american consciousness you know right. what what is a what is a manchester city how are they different to manchester united what's the tradition what the history of arsenal of of all of all of these these brands that in england is just assumed just like when you watch baseball tonight you don't need to be told who the teams are or their histories you know them in your blood i think michael and i realized that there was an opportunity to bring our, our passion um, and our uh, just our, having lived through the, through the 80s and 90s and the growth of the game in Britain, watching the Premier League become the dominant force out of nowhere in Europe and create a vehicle that would allow Americans with this new passion, this new joy, this new knowledge, thanks to the internet, to connect to the sport and to each other. Yeah, I mean, some would argue, why would you leave a place that's football obsessed to come to somewhere that, as you said, has been uh, waiting to embrace it for decades now? Uh, but there is an opportunity then to try to create within others the same passion that you have to bring to people um, an introduction of something that you love so much and maybe hope that if you cover it well and right and with love, then people will be more likely and apt to enjoy it than if they get the sort of 
half-ass coverage that they're used to. You know, um, there, I, I, I'll say yeah. that Americans, Americans didn't need us to fall in love with it. The, the Internet changed that. I mean, there's a couple of things that kicked in. Um, when I, I arrived here in the early 90s, the Internet um, was, if it existed, it was so slow and so buggy. It just kind of um, allowed for vague experiences in AOL chat rooms. But as the internet became more powerful, it allowed Americans to connect to um, Manchester United, Arsenal, Everton, whomever they supported, and follow the soap opera kind of goings on day to day as closely as season ticket holders who lived in the same zip code um, as the actual football teams. And then the other thing that happened that was really game changing, uh, apart from the fact that so much football started to be broadcast on television, so you could actually follow along. Um, the games, funnily enough, better in America. There was more live football broadcast in America than there was in England, uh, where they actually still to this day don't broadcast that much live football because the, the country's so tiny, they want people to go to the live games and put their bums on seats. Is EA Sports FIFA, the gaming um, angle, sensitized an entire generation mm-hmm. of young Americans to the teams, the personalities, the playing styles? There's so many young Americans fell in love with this game and realized how playing as Lionel Messi was different, felt different, allowed you to do different things than playing Cristiano Ronaldo um, in EA Sports FIFA. And that sensitivity engaged them in a love for the sports, the tactics, the formations, the nuances. I think that perfect storm of the televisual, the internet and EA Sports FIFA she did a love for this game. And I will say, I want to be completely clear, an incredible knowledge, not just a passion. I think the American fan who brought with uh, their new passion brought an American love of statistics and an yeah. American love of numbers to, to, to football, soccer, that makes them as informed, often more informed than your, av- your average kind of casual English fan who's watched the game just habitually. Uh, for generations, but almost the freshness of the American passion is allowing them to see new, deeper, richer things, and I think it's amazing. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, U.S. soccer, of course, still finding its way. Do you think that the success of the women's team might actually bode well for the men's team in terms of you know, the kind of excitement every time the women win the World Cup and do amazing things? Then when a couple years later the men roll around, even though expectations are much lower, maybe there's more interest in at least watching them because we've we've got we, we remember how great it is when the women are playing. Yeah, it's incredibly complicated. You know, Americans love things that they kick ass at. Yeah, by and large, <laughs> I, I remember watching the Dream Team in was it the Barcelona Olympics? Um, I, ha- I happened yeah. to watch that with with a bunch of Americans in the early nineties. We were in Europe. And I couldn't believe, you know, Charles Barkley went up for a dunk with, against a hapless Angolan and uh, elbowed him in the side of the head, either on the way up or on the way down. I can't remember which. And I, to me, like English me, I thought it was just awful. Just like, why would you do that? You know, it's just you, you're clearly going to beat them by 40, 50, 60 points. Why would you humiliate them? as you did it. But the Ameri- I was the only English guy. I was with maybe 50 Americans watching this game. All of them left their feet and went berserk. They thought it was the greatest highlight of the Olympics. And I, I realized, you know, that's the difference between America and English people. You love your winners. Love, 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 love. And that was just like the most dominant, most 
kind of oh, just alpha uh, <laughs> alpha movement. And so Americans love winners, and our women are winners. Our women are they are unbelievable. They are they are elite athletes who have both pioneered a way that thousands of women in now we're seeing in you know there's about a dozen countries that are taking the sport incredibly seriously all of them look at what the american women have done as pathfinders just with awe and reverence and they're they're remarkable um god equal pay uh cannot come quick enough for for, for the for the women the men's complication is incredibly challenging we're a country of 330 million people and the fact that despite our deep desire for the past at least three decades, we've not been able to produce a, a supply line of elite footballers. It's complicated, uh, occasionally befuddling, um, deeply challenging. And I think fraught for many of the guys watching the women open up a kind of whoop tournament after tournament after mm. tournament, um, while at the same time, and for the last World Cup, they didn't even qualify. Um, all I can say is I watched the 1999 women take before then the beginning of this women's world cup cycle, they took the field um, one more time before the, uh, this current team went off to win the world cup and watching them, your Julie Fowdy's, your Mia Hams, n- no one has done more to grow the profile of this game. I mean, all of us, everything we do, men and women, who love the game, we stand on their shoulders. It, it, it's very sad to me that many of the women were, have almost become obscure. They had that 1999 moment, that's the, the moment the sports bra seen around the world right. uh, moment. But many of them, as names, as individuals, as personalities, never really got their due. And I find that incredibly sad. Uh, but it's we're all of us, all of us, men, women, uh, athletes, fans, broadcasters, all of us are standing on their shoulders. We'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura's COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire. That's what she said. So talk to me about, because, you know, when you talk about the U.S. teams, you say we, because you consider yourself an American and you associate with our teams. Uh, tell me about becoming a citizen last year. I, I remember being out to dinner with a friend's friend, and that day he had just gone through the, the, the naturalization process and started tearing up talking about it. And I felt um, guilty that the the Americans at the table sort of were privileged enough to not really understand why it was such an emotional moment for him. So maybe maybe explain why you you sometimes say that that's one of the best days of your life. Well, other than me, my wife and having um, my kids, um, it's undoubtedly the best day of my life. uh, I'm actually writing a book about it at the moment. It's 
So it's very fresh, you know, to to go to a courtroom in America with, I think for me, it was just 272 other people becoming American that day. I think they came from 63 different countries. Many of them had fought their way to America. Many of them, you know, a couple of them had walked across deserts, had escaped conflict, um, had been refugees, had, you know, had had harrowing journeys here. Um, you know, my journey, thank God, is soaked in John Hughes and uh, the 1999 women's team and the 19 uh, and, and the 1985 Bears team and going to Old Comiskey and, you know, tasting um, my first Italian. You know, the milestones for me are hilarious and wonderful and warm and kind of just the quintessential soft power uh, moments that um, that America gave the world. Um, but all of us, whether the, the struggle to get there was brutal and, uh, and, and physical and mental or whether it was like mine more existential, all of us are in that room because of a dream that we all had, a shared dream, a dream of uh, the United States of America, of, um, you know, of, uh, of, of, of Budweiser, of, um, of Dolly Parton, of, uh, you know, Chance the Rapper, you, you can, the public enemy, whatever it was that you either listen to or listen to now, all of us were animated by that same uh, that same dream of becoming American and to stand in that room and raise your hand uh, in the company of those individuals. And the one thing we all then shared was to become American. It was it was incredibly life fulfilling. It was deeply meaningful. And a year on, I got to throw out the first pitch at the Chicago White Sox, which was oh, great. The, the, you know, the first ever baseball stadium I went to. I went a couple of weeks ago uh, with my uh, second oldest son. And to stand on that mound, which was, you know, I'd seen the Chicago White Sox as a kid when I was a teen, when I went on that trip, to stand there a year on from becoming American, knowing that at Old Comiskey, I once sat in the stands, watched um, Harold Baines and his team, um, and dreamt of becoming American. And to know that I would become American and was now standing on the, on the mound about to pitch a terrible, terrible um, <laughs> uh, a, a terrible pitch that was way outside the strike zone. It was, it's incredibly fulfilling. And I think we always laugh. It is like Scarface, but more self-aggrandizing and incredibly delusional. The story, you know, that fits all of these, these kind of American um, narratives, it does live on. And that's what you feel when you go into the, the courtroom uh, with the other new Americans. You feel that a dream that you've had deep within you uh, is possible to fulfill them. What do you think the people back in Liverpool or back in England think of you aligning yourself with America? <laughs> You'll have to ask them, to be honest. I, uh, Liverpool's an amazing city, a city of creativity, of hustlers and hook. Not unlike Chicago, uh, you know, hustlers and hucksters and dreamers and talkers. And there's always been such a deep affinity between America and Liverpool because when Liverpool was a port, a flourishing port, one of the world's busiest, it was a port because Britain was doing so much trade with America. So everything that came in spilled off first um, into Liverpool through the Mersey. And that's, you know, the Beatles rock and roll 
build off those those boats. Liverpool was the first place to really hear hear the uh, the sound of America. Uh, Bill Haley, Chuck Berry in the 1950s, um, and so Liverpudlians have always felt you know that the, the, there's an American um, identity which is which is you know it's a very Irish city, it's a very Catholic city, it's a football city, it's a music city, but the American connect is very rich and very deep uh, there so I think Liverpool has always lent more towards um, the nation across the Atlantic at times than it has to to London which is like the south and a symbol of of wealth and Liverpool's uh, never had that so I think there is definitely a kinship and the fact that I've made it is uh, you'll have to ask them you have to ask my mum I I was going to say maybe not right maybe not the generic Liverpudlian or, or Brit, but what about, you know, friends and family? Is there anyone who says, you know, we we think it's great that you love America, we think it's great that you're a citizen, but um, to describe us as black and white in America as in color uh, is rejecting who you are? Yeah, well, I can, I'll tell you this, Sarah, and then uh, we can work out to rock it. The, on, my, on my bedroom wall, um, I, had a, I had one room painted, one wall painted blue, one wall painted white, the other red um, when I was about 11. Um, and the painter um, who considered himself to be a Michelangelo in, in the making, um, when my mum and dad were out, I persuaded him to paint a ginormous American flag um, on one wall, which he did, replete with a Statue of Liberty that actually looks a little uh, like a... Um, <laughs> It, 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 it looks like a sick old woman, but God love him, he tried. <laughs> and there were skyscrapers, but it was like children's version of a skyscraper. And um, and then I, you know, Coke cans. I had a thousand Coke cans in mm. my room. I collected them, but cans of Budweiser. I had hundreds of them mm. um, on, on one wall. I had the Bears offensive line, uh, a huge poster of them. I had. Um, run DMC right over my bed by Ferris Bueller. Um, I had the singer Tiffany. Uh, yeah. I had a great poster of her. God, she was she was amazing. Thank you, Tiffany. <laughs> Thank you for all your work. Um, and you know, on and on. I had that Jim McMahon, the fridge. So I'd say for my mum, it's probably not a surprise. Though she went at my wedding, her wedding speech kind of leant to the microphone, and just before starting to sob, she said. The lesson of life is never let your children paint a flag of another country on their wall unless you want them to move that. Yeah, you'll never get them back. Uh, your patriotism is very inspiring, and I wonder what message you might give to uh, native-born Americans who maybe in recent years have felt uh, dis, dis, um, disappointed or, or maybe even disenfranchised with the country that they, they grew up in. Um, I, I would never dare do that. Um, everyone has their own story, and this is just mine. I can say, though, the older I get, you know, football, uh, which is something I am prepared to talk about, uh, football, when you grow up, and particularly in England, it's so tribal, it's so tied to geography, it feels like it's everything. You know, teams go to another city. And they've got to make their mark. We've got, we've got to fight. Uh, we've got to show them. We've got to show them that Everton were here. Um, you know, Manchester, we've got to show them what we've been. And so a lot of football, a lot of sports in general, is, a, is about negatives, about crapping on other people, um, about making people feel 
lesser and you're, you're asserting yourself so that you feel. And what I've realized, the older I get, and we always say this on the show on Men in Blazers, just because, say, Chelsea beat my team Everton, it doesn't make a Chelsea fan a better person um, right. because their team win. I'm not a worse person because my team loses. And the older I get, and this somewhat relates to your question, even though it's not directly on the news, the older I get, the more I believe that we should watch sports. And, enjoy, and this is a bit of a radical notion, I understand, from an American perspective, but I've experienced it in the football fandom, which is, emerging from America, which is really based on a joyous shared discovery. I believe in watching sports just with more love. Like the world yeah. has enough hate in it right now for us not to bring it into sports. And the older I get, the more, you know, you still, I'm an Everton fan. We're meant to hate Liverpool fans and vice versa. The older I get, the more I just enjoy marveling at individual moments of brilliance, individual moments of uh, of trying and failing, individual moments of of vanity, individual moments of despair um, and defeat and savouring the human moments of theatre. And so the one thing I'd say is just bringing, trying to bring as much love um, yeah. into everything that we do right now is really our focus. It's the focus of Men in Blazers. I think it's my focus outside of Men in Blazers as well but bringing a lot as much love to the world as we can that's really what i'm trying to do well that is an absolutely great endeavor and a a great message to sort of end on but before i let you go you have to do the one thing that everybody does but nobody expects didn't expect a kind of spanish inquisition the Spanish Inquisition. Yes, it's the thing that everybody does, but nobody expects. And of course, I'm now stealing from your homeland with Monty Python. Uh, number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Oh, that's an easy one. Uh, Tracy Chapman's debut album. Oh, you know, one of my previous guests, who is one of the co-creators of Billions, actually discovered Tracy Chapman in a coffee shop when he was in college and helped sign her to that very first record album. Brian's a mate of mine. There you I go. You know Brian. I love, I love, love, love that story. But Tracy Chapman, no matter how deserted the desert island is, how inopportune the conditions are, how little food there is just putting the needle on tracy chapman's record will remind you that no matter how sad you are how bereft you are how awful life me it feels in that moment everything tracy chapman has experienced and survived is much worse than mm-hmm. your condition and that is the joy that i look every time everton lose i put fast car on yeah as a reminder that life could be worse Number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Boldness. Boldness? Yeah. <laughs> Rise up, bold nation. Love you. I have no doubt about that one. Definitely, definitely. When, you are, when, you're, uh, when you're a bold gentleman, there's different ways of embracing boldness. Many, many gentlemen, because I've actually interviewed thousands of bold people, and <laughs> there's many different life approaches to the boldening and when you approach it just with joy and self-confidence um it's one of the great gifts um of life so when you are bald unlike brian erlacher when i drive around chicago sarah mm, the, the hair lacquer yeah I, I love i love chicago i was just there i love every second driving around the neighborhoods of chicago just seeing the changing the transitions the 
the footprints of Studs Terkel, just the, the, <laughs> the wonders. Oh, my God, the wonders of that city. And the one thing, the one negative that just oh, upsets me to my core is every single Brian Urlacher poster of this bull denier just looming up, rising up, and injecting a sense of self-loathing into the, uh, into the water supply. Agreed. Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? I wish I'd gone bald earlier. <laughs> I feel like... I, success I, would have come earlier. Uh, uh, yes, I feel like success <laughs> would have come earlier. Um, if I bought, my whole life has been a failure. So uh, it's a wonderful failure. Um, and I welcome, genuinely welcome, uh, I revel in it. As a, you know, Everton fan, a White Sox fan, a football fan. Uh, oh, but it's, uh, I'd, I'd say 90% of my life has been uh, an immense failure and I'm incredibly <laughs> grateful. Don't take my failing away from me. Don't take my losing away from me. It's uh, genuinely who I am. Interesting. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? I have. Uh, usually on the delivering or receiving end. Um, I've had so many fist fights. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. Again, growing up again, it was a uh, growing up in Liverpool was a uh, it was remarkable um, for just the wonderful random acts of violence that um, <laughs> pop marked that period of time. Uh, so um, I just say that anyone who grew up when I did is no stranger to the taste of their own blood. Yes, um, yes. in their mouth. But that's uh, I've had the fist fights with Daving. We've had um, oh wow, we've had men. Listeners to the show, when we used to be live on radio, um, we'll, rem- we'll, remember, we'll remember a couple of them. It's, wow. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's an amazing days to be alive. <laughs> if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh, wow. That's a, uh, that is, um, they alive or dead? Uh, anything. Anyone ever. Um. God, I'd probably say, I'd probably say Primo Levy, uh, but that is probably not what you want on the Sarah thing <laughs> uh, podcast. I, I genuinely would um, would have loved loved to be um, Jim McMahon in that um, in that nineteen eighty five season. Just someone who was not the most skilled, knew he wasn't the most skilled, um, and that knew that skill was kind of like maybe 50% of the battle and the other 50% was mental and just brought a tenacity Mm. to the field every single time he played. And I admire that greatly. I think it's probably my favorite uh, value, human value, sporting value, tenacity. Mm. Um, And so to experience that brand of just marvelous swagger and tenacity, um, either that or Sid Luckman. I wish I'd seen Sid. Uh-huh. That makes me incredible. When I came to Chicago that summer as a teen, I actually met Sid, Sid Luckman, uh, who by then, he's a Chicago Bears quarterback early. If it, arguably, the Bears have never really recovered from him stopping right, being still the quarterback. Best. <laughs> you could say they're still, you could say, and this is painful to me to talk about this season, still trying to replace Sid Luckman mm. from the 1930s. <laughs> right. But him. To, to be him so I could have seen him, you know, hearing all the stories yeah. about him, reading about him. So one of those, one of those couple of people. Those are good ones. Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? 
on a daily basis. You come out just today. Or, uh, I'm, I'm constantly embarrassed. It's wonderful. I think embarrassment is a, it's a remarkable... All these questions you've got about failing and embarrassing, like genuinely, you cannot take those qualities away from me. I love that being embarrassed. It's a wonderful thing. It's learning new <laughs> things about the world and yourself. I, I revel. And if you haven't paid it, revel in the losing, the failing, the embarrassing. It's, it's, I would say being embarrassed is probably about 57. I don't want to come over all Bill Jamesy on you, but about 57, 57% of my human existence. How many okay, so 90% failure and 57% embarrassment. Uh, there are together. It works. Yes, there are 10, so you're almost done. Number okay. seven, the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve. Oh, these ridiculous questions. You said you wanted therapy. You said you're, you're getting it right yeah. here. <laughs> like, this is like Doctor Gender. This is like the worst visit to Doctor Malfi. Um, <laughs> uh, the thing, the thing I, I uh, like to improve. God, um, I mean, I have so many things. My brain is currently it's like Slumdog Millionaire. My brain is just <laughs> synapsing with thousands of suggestions. Um, that you should ask that a quicker answer would be what do I like? What am I positive <laughs> about? What what do I feel good about? And uh, but uh, so many things, Sarah. But you know what? They got the my rest of my life to f around with it all. Number eight. Okay. Well, we'll we'll continue thinking about that one. If you could play commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Four. What one rule as commissioner of life? Mm-hmm. Um, that's fantastic. Um, I think I would probably try and solve the the Kashmir conflict. Oh wow, that's a big one. Yeah. Wow. You know, okay. just that's. Uh, I think not enough people come on your show and talk about the Kashmir yes, conflict. Of course not. It's the first so one. Maybe I'm over. Maybe I'm overcorrecting. Come on, right. keep going. <laughs> Number nine. What's the most scared you've ever been? Waking up on a daily basis. Is um, is vaguely terrifying. The most scared I've ever been. Um, <laughs> yes. Fear is just a such a dominant emotion in my life. It's like asking um, Tom Brady w- which victory gave him the most pleasure. You know, they all. I'm sure for him, <laughs> they all just merge into one big orgy of glory. Um, so asking me like what the most scared I've ever been. It, again, it's like woof. It's like a, that's a that's that's probably a, two, a 25-year answer of, of lived experiences. Can we make number 10 a positive one? Come on. Yes. What three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Um, he's bald. Just, just, you just need two. Or he uh, is bald. The, 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 oh, uh, <laughs> he's bald. He's, he's bald bastard. <laughs> a bald bastard. A bald bastard. Perfection. Yeah, Uh, Yeah, that's pretty much what I would say. And finally, who should I have on this podcast? I got to get Michael, of course, Davies. Who else should I have on the podcast that would be interesting to talk to? Um, I tell you, Jim McMahon would be genuinely fascinating. Yeah. I had him. I haven't yet. That would be a good one. You're right. So Um, Rich Cohen, my mate, the the writer, Rich Cohen, wrote a wonderful book about the Chicago Bears where he uh, tracked down uh, all the Chicago Bears, or as many of the living ones as he could, from the eighty-five, eighty-six season. And the amazing, he went. He went to see Jim McMahon. I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to let you go. The um, he went to um, 
meet Jim McMahon, who I think was living out in Arizona, um, and um, hung out with him, got his story, heard, you know, did the interview, and then he said to him, you know, I brought my ball. Um, can we just go out into your garden and um, and throw the ball so I can tell my kids I, I play catch with Jim McMahon? And Jim McMahon said something, and, and Rich writes it better, and I'm repeating it. I'm doing it off my memory, and, and Rich is a fantastic writer. He says, Jim McMahon said, you know, I, honestly, I can't lift my hand high enough to even throw you your car keys. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rich said to him, and I think about this a lot, he said to him, God, it's terrible. I'm so sorry that you're so physically challenged, and I think he had some other challenges yeah, that are a result of his, yeah. his playing career. And so Rich said to him, knowing what you know now about how your life has wound up, what would you do differently again? And he said, Jim McMahon didn't have to wait a beat before grinning and just say nothing. I wouldn't mm. change a single thing. So I, I love a life, a tenacious life, live without regrets of a bloke who tried everything. Some things worked, lots of things didn't. Uh, experienced some glory, experienced a lot of failure. Um had incredible moments that defined him and ultimately um that's a very much a through line yeah. uh, in how i see my life and i will say kevin butler butthead came we did a show in atlanta we do a lot of live shows we did a show in atlanta he came backstage the only kicker to be in the college uh, football hall of fame and came back and talked about his love of soccer uh, how it's kind of taken him how it's engaged him and his family and to have him be in our green room, sitting down with that gentleman um, who had given me so much pleasure as a kid. Many of the reasons I came here were because of that Bears team. Um, everything in my life has come full circle. I wish mm. that to you, Sarah Spade. I wish it to all your listeners. Um, and that's it. America, Thank amazing. You. And courage. <laughs> I love it. That's what she said. Hey, have you ever thought to yourself, wow, I really love Sarah Spain and this podcast. I wish I could listen to her all the time, like every night. Well, you can because I have a nightly radio show called Spain and Company that's on 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern on national ESPN radio, the ESPN app, and streaming on ESPN.com, also Sirius XM Channel 80. And if you can't catch it live, a couple segments are usually posted to the Twitter feed at Spain and Company every night. You should check it out. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me, and I fix it. This week, people who complain about you complaining about something. Yeah, I get it. My lengthy delay in LaGuardia for six hours isn't as bad as you working three jobs to make ends meet, or starving kids in another country, or another serious tragedy or calamity of which there are many, thousands, millions every day. But that doesn't mean I still can't be frustrated in this exact moment that I'm wasting away in LaGuardia. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. The worst time to tell someone that their agitation is unreasonable is when they're agitated. If someone is always complaining about something, and those complaints aren't a feature of their incredibly popular and relatable podcast, then I understand getting sick of it. As I've talked about many times on this podcast, your brain creates bridges to feelings and emotions that you use often. So reacting to unexpected hassles with outsized anger or frustration might mean that the next time something annoying happens to you, you're more likely to react poorly again. So don't do that. You have to learn how to take things in stride. Stay positive. Look on the bright side. It's super important. But if, for whatever reason, you are annoyed and frustrated, being told not to be ain't going to help. And someone comparing their problems to yours is not going to make your problems go away. All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. 
let people vent in a moment of distress, no matter how large or small. They just got to get it out and get some sympathy for the six hours they wasted in LaGuardia before they can just accept their fate, deal with it appropriately, and decide that it's a great time to check out some podcasts. Like that's what she said with Sarah Spain. There, I fixed it. Hey, season two of Always Late with Katie Nolan airs on Thursday nights at 1230 a.m. Eastern on ESPN2. Katie also has a great podcast called Sports that you can find wherever you get your podcasts. And speaking of great ESPN podcasts, Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy coming back for season two. The new season will debut on October 23rd, but stay tuned. Some bonus preview materials coming in the next couple weeks. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And speaking of Katie... Hey, Sarah, it's Katie Nolan. Uh, I have a dilemma I was hoping you could help me with. So I live alone, and as you know, and I'm sure you can relate to, I'm busy, sometimes I'm traveling, packing a lot of suitcases, but I come home and I kind of just dump everything out onto my floor, and I think I'm going to get to it later, and and I don't. So here's my actual dilemma. I need help cleaning my house, and there are services you can use to do that, but I seem to think that I'm going to clean it first the one time and then hire the service to maintain it. And I've been saying that for probably two months now. So I need you to help me figure out what I should do in order to make my apartment not look like a bomb just went off. Thank you in advance. Oh, wow. Okay. I definitely feel you on this one. Uh, sometimes I just leave the suitcase right in the bedroom hallway for my next trip because I can't bring myself to unpack it all, put it away, and then drag it back out five days later. And yet, even knowing that that is an intentional choice that I have decided to do, I still feel like the suitcase is like laughing at me every single time I walk by it. Uh, and you're definitely onto something with the whole services you can hire to clean things. That's been around for quite some time. Uh, and you're good on that feeling that you want to clean for the cleaning service. It's a trap we all fall into. But if it's been months and you haven't gotten around to cleaning for the cleaning service and therefore have no cleaning service at all, then you might want to just suck it up and assume you're not going to hire them anyway. Let them work around your messes and at least they will clean, scrub, dust, etc. Your place will be messy, but at least clean, which is half the battle. Uh, but if you're determined to do it, then I would say make yourself accountable to someone else. Tell a friend what needs to get done. Invite him or her over with promises of wine and food afterward. And this ask them for one hour to help you do it. No excuses. Or if you don't have any friends willing to help actually do the cleaning, then find one willing to hold you accountable for you doing it. Tell them to come over on Saturday at 4 p.m. and that your place will be organized by then. And that will give you a reason to do it. No room for procrastination. You'll have to have it done by the time they arrive at 4 p.m. That's not going to work. Have something to aim for, like a party. Throw a Patriots watch party or an always late with Katie Nolan. Now, Thursday nights at 1230 a.m. Eastern on ESPN2. Watch party. You'll be embarrassed to have people over and you'll be forced to get things organized and cleaned. And if none of that works, I would recommend getting one of your most honest, brutally honest, plainest speaking friends. I'm picturing Diana Rossini here to do an unplanned Drop by, without warning, Instagram live video of your whole apartment in all of its hoarder glory and post it to everyone that follows her and you and the world. I imagine that would get you moving. The very threat of Diana Rossini coming over unannounced and showing everyone exactly how you live, uh, I think, should get you in action. Also, I would recommend, if none of these things work, that you should probably listen to next week's podcast with Gretchen Rubin to hear how having your space organized will make you happier and more successful. Maybe that's all you're going to need, just to give you that little nudge. Good luck, Godspeed, and congrats on the new show being on ESPN2.
If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain. Or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate, and review to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Leave your dilemma in your review, and perhaps I'll fix it. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. 